What is up? My name is Ben Hilsinger, and thanks for hanging out with me for another episode of Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, review us, and all that jazz. It helps people find the show and makes me feel like people like me. Today's guest is Eric Slick, drummer for Dr. Dog. Eric is a great player with a modern-day Ringo-esque approach to serving the song, which is an obvious focus when you hear his drum parts, parts that are deceivingly hard to execute well. His effortless technique is something that I've admired from afar, and I was really anxious to hear about his influences and background as a young player. In addition to his tenure in Dr. Dog and working as a drummer for many, many other artists, Eric is a prolific songwriter himself, releasing many albums under his own name, Eric Slick. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric as he breaks down the top five drumming moments that shaped his style. Cheers. In the All right, I'm here with Eric Slick. Thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. I'm so psyched. So let's just get into it. Uh, yeah. So the first one is When We Was Fab by George Harrison from the album Cloud Nine. And uh, it was from a second 55 to 126. Yes. great tune yeah yeah such a good song yeah i watched this video last night that's a it's a fun video yeah very 80s yeah oh, cloud nine also one of the worst album covers of all time i don't know who in- <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna say that <laughs> i don't know who instructed george to to wear those like wraparound oakley's with the clouds i don't know who told him to do that so i Listen, I heard that song for the first time because my family used to go to Ocean City, New Jersey every year for vacation. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a dry town. It's a sober town. My dad had just gotten sober right, right before I got right before I was born. Mm-hmm. So I think that record Cloud Nine came out in like 87 or 88. I was probably like two or three years old when I first heard that song. And I was very much like, I'm going to be a drummer. I'm really into drumming. My dad was playing me all this Ringo stuff. And that record in particular, I think it's Keltner and Ringo Starr on that record mm-hmm. on very on different songs, but on that song in particular, um, you know, I feel like those fills and that style of playing that sp- specific style of Ringo playing is like embedded in my musical DNA. Like without that song, without that record, I would not be the drummer that I am today. And I always come back to that music because like it reminds me of being on vacation with my family. Sure, you know. Um, and I feel like there's one fill in there in particular, you know, Ringo's playing time and it sounds great. And, you know, it's very 80s production. They're trying to uh, prey on people's Beatles nostalgia a little bit. Yeah, very much. Um, yeah. But Ringo does, you know, one of the, you know, he does a very classic lyrical Ringo fill. Yeah. And it's funny. I was playing that song for my wife the other day and be like, this song is such a big moment in my not only in my drumming life, but in my songwriting life too, because like Jeff Lynne produced it and uh, 
I love all things ELO, all things uh, Jeff Lynne production-wise. I saw a little Jeff Lynne cameo in that in that video too. A little piano and his arm keeps extending. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. Yeah, I mean Jeff produced all that stuff in the late '80s. Like uh, he was a part of the Tom Petty resurgence. He was part of the Traveling Wilburys. Uh, so those Orbison. records, yeah. Orbison, those records were really big in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, but I played that fill for Natalie, and she was like, "Oh my God, that's I've heard you do." that fill yeah like, like damn I, it <laughs> i know yeah a, a little bit like damn it but also um you know it just felt like something that is now was part of my vocabulary then and it's part of my vocabulary now on the kit so lots like i almost like teared up when i was listening to it the other day because mm-hmm. i haven't seen my family in a while because of covid so like yeah it's like oh, i was like oh this song just gets me man <laughs> well then he also has the classic uh overdubbed really loose roomy tom you know which is a very that might even be a timpani might even be i mean if it's jeff lynn it's probably a timpani sure yeah yeah um but all these things not only the drum part but the production style of the song are things that i've return to as a songwriter like sort of the chunky strings um you know uh like psychedelic sound effects kind of backward strings backward vocals these are all uh tools that i use my own songwriting and whether i'm conscious of it or not you know i'm i'm always coming back to that moment of hearing like cloud nine and the elo stuff for the first time for Mm -hmm. sure and as a kid even though the drum part is basically the first drum part anyone learns yes. it's just one and three on the kick drum yes it's it's cool that as a kid you were like that's the coolest drum part ever i want to be a drummer now you know? definitely and, and my parents also had a uh collection of beatles vhs tapes so we had magical mystery tour uh but we also had one called i think ready steady go which was okay. um a televised performance like a filmed performance where I'm, i don't think the band is mimicking i think they're actually playing but it was a British, I think it was a British television show, and Ringo is just crushing it on the kit. And that was my intro. I mean, I, I, drummers say this all the time. It's like either they saw Ringo on the Ed Sullivan show in real time, or they saw him playing and they're like, I, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Look at how happy he is. There's so much joy yeah. in his playing. Yeah. Um, and when you're a kid, I also think some guy be going like this, you know, waving their head and smiling while they play the kit is a very attractive thing. You know, it's not like. You know, some like person looking miserable playing. Like when you're a kid, you you want to see smiling faces. Sure. Um, so seeing that ready, steady, go was the thing that really solidified. Like I want to be a drummer, a hundred percent. Like I, there was never a question in my mind that I would I was going to go down some other path, like a uh, accountant or you know. It was just like I'm going to do Ringo. I'm going to be Ringo. <laughs> Yeah, do you ever get embarrassed when someone asks you the reason you play drums and you say Ringo? Because to me, yes. I'm always like, I'm like, don't roll your eyes. You actually don't know how perfect of an answer this is, but it's Ringo, you know? Of course. Well, I mean, I also think that we have other Ringos by the decades, you know? Like, Quest Love is the modern day Ringo. You know, mm-hmm. like, when you're, when you're going to ask different generations what the, these important drummers were, like, we're all going to have our Ringo because there always seems to be a drummer that like encapsulates the time, right? Sure. And like Ringo definitely encapsulates a lot of that era. And he was also very straightforward and very melodic and very like unprecedented as a drummer, really. You know, like someone play, he, he is his own thing. I was watching the video of uh, them performing Don't Let Me Down 
on the uh, Let It Be rooftop. Sure. And I never realized that the choruses are just four crashes. He goes, pah, 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 pah. It's like, who would ever do that at the top of a chorus? We Would you do that? Would you, like, no. if someone brought you a song like, don't let me, like, don't let me down, you'd probably go, don't let, nah. you'd probably do like a cymbal and then snare hit, maybe a tom fill to go back yeah. into the verse. But he goes, psh, 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 psh. and I was like, that is, that's Ringo. It's a it's its own melodic piece right there. And then as far as feeling like ashamed about it, I think that we all need to get rid of our like like our shame about yeah. stuff like that because yeah, I mean, I love I love uh, Ringo Starr just as, just like I love like J Lo's Waiting for Tonight. You know, like <laughs> sure. <laughs> like Waiting for Tonight is an incredible song, but I also I can hold these two thoughts in my brain at the same time, you know? Yeah, like, I guess it's not so much a shame from me. It's like when someone asks me what my favorite drummer is or whatever, and I, I wanna give them some obscure answer where they're like, Oh, you're a cool guy. Of but course. It's like, no, it is Ringo and don't but I know you probably heard that from every other drummer, but it's because, you know, it's Ringo. It's Ringo, and it's you hear it at a young age. Whether you know, like maybe your parents are Beatles fans, maybe mm-hmm. they're into that style of music, and they play a lot around the house. So it's you're processing it, whether you're aware of it or not. Yeah. And so we have that like nostalgic feeling when we hear Ringo too, right? It's like you hear "Ticket to Ride," and you're like, ah, childhood. oh my gosh. That album, uh, "Help," is a one of my favorite sounding drums that because they're, they're still wide open. Yes, it's before um, the tea towels. Yeah. The snare drum on that record is so snappy and so perfect. That's ironic for a guy who makes <laughs> muffling products to love. I know, we'll edit this out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Ringo, I know we could have a whole episode just talking about that. I did want to say, uh, watching some videos of you in Dr. Dog, um, there's a live video of you uh, at KXP. You're playing over here, over there. Mm-hmm. And on the record, it's not so much, you're not a- as busy on the hi-hat, but you're doing a And it reminds me of the beat, speaking of help, um, the song Act Naturally. Yeah. And it's kind of this bastardized, it's not straight, it's not swung. It's very like, you know, in the 50s when rock and roll didn't know what it was doing yet. But that feel on the hi-hat is super fast, but still getting that kind of syncopated thing is very difficult and so i i applauded you because you do it the whole song and i'm like that's hard <laughs> it's really hard yeah uh well i was thinking about sort of like uh yeah like skiffle beats or like uh there's also a song on the traveling Wilburys record called um oh what is it called it's i think it's called she loves you or she loves your she loves you i can't remember the name of the song but keltner does that style of beat and I'd always been like, oh man, he's definitely calling back to like the Carl Perkins era of that that yeah half swung hi hat feel. Um, so when we did the recorded version of Over Here Over There, the instruction was more like Lust for Life or like uh, you know boom ka boom ka boom don't sure. ka don't ka the Jet song whatever yeah whatever, totally whatever your reference point is. Um, <laughs> Uh, that was the initial version of that song. It was a little bit more manic on the recorded version, but then live, Scott wanted to turn it back into like a country tune, which I think was the original intent. Intent, but I do not. I don't have a very wide vocabulary of like country, so I was like, I'll just do act. Yeah, I'll do the act naturally beat because that's like <laughs> that's one of Ringo's country tunes. Sure, I'll just sure. do that. You know the. My my hi hat technique is definitely yeah you said bastardized but like it's def- <laughs> it's definitely like a mixture of like watching the James Gadson instructional video hundreds of times watching like old Stuart Copeland footage and then like 
yeah, Ringo or something. You know, like it's some some like uh, weird melting pot of those for sure. Yeah, speaking of Gadsden, that's the the Nelson Drum Shop always has those hats with the drummers, and mine mine says Gadsden. So uh, good choice. I agree with you on that. Oh man, the kissing my love video uh, that's on YouTube of them performing that in like 1973 is yeah, it's the baddest hi hat work that's out there, and he's got like the gold teeth and everything. It's just like it's it's lovely, but that's not my big fat five. Love that (laughs) video, but not my big fat five. And I will say that you were very adamant that it had to be in order. Uh, yes. So this is chronological as well. Speaking of, let's go to number two, which is Bill Bruford from Bruford and the Beat, which is more of an instructional. It's like a uh, curation of interviews and instructional stuff he did. Uh, yep. And it's minute 140 to 226. Mm-hmm. So let me uh, let's let's drop in the audio. <laughs> let's cue it up. Yeah. So I legitimately watched that drum video every single morning uh, before I went to school. This was before YouTube. Mm -hmm. This was not even a DVD. This was a VHS tape of of Bruford and the Beat. I had this tiny, like, 13-inch television in my bedroom, and I would watch it every single day. I was obsessed with it. And this was around the time I was, like, 13 years old, 13 or 14, I was really into all things King Crimson, yes, progressive rock, and um, I was like, wouldn't it be great if Bill Bruford had an instructional video? Because I had been to Guitar Center and seen like the Neil Peart one, I'd seen mm-hmm. like Mike Portnoy, and those weren't for me. I was like, <laughs> yeah. even though I'm a prog lover, like those videos were not for me. Yeah. Um, I was like, and I also have always had this weird penchant for like, old, like older things. Like I've always been more attracted to the retro stuff so when i found out there was a bill Bruford drum video and then i could order it from um interstate music did you ever get those catalogs like casio interstate music oh yeah 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 so i got an interstate music catalog and they're like we have a we have the uh repressing of the Bruford and the beat vhs tape and it was produced by max roach fun fact oh really max roach and bill Bruford were buddies and the max roach instructional video which isn't so much an instructional video as, as much as it's a performance video mm-hmm. uh it's amazing uh, but they had produced those videos in the same sitting, so they have a lot of the same backgrounds and stuff. Um, That's rad. But that video was my uh, like visual introduction to 80s King Crimson, which was the band that had Bill Bruford, Robert Fripp, Tony Levin, and Adrian Ballou. Hmm. And um, I listened to that every single day, and uh, the way that he's playing, the reason it was so influential for me is because I... I loved that he didn't have any traditional symbols. I had was already getting tired of like traditional symbol sounds. He had no hi hat in that video. I don't know if you noticed. There's no hi hat. Um, everything's been replaced with Simmons pads and octobonds and that uh, extremely ringy snare. Um, yeah, <laughs> that that is 
totally singular to him. So I used to tune my snare drum. My dad bought me a Pearl Sensitone snare drum, and I would like crank it and try to make it sound as much like Bill Bruford as possible. I went on eBay. I bought Simmons pads. I bought a Simmons SDS-8. I tuned all of the the Simmons to notes so I could play like marimba patterns on it. Like I was an extremely dorky 13-year-old kid. Uh, <laughs> that was my interest at that time. I was like, I just want to play exactly like Bill Bruford plays in that particular part of the the video. Yeah. Um, and I also just loved that he was like not doing typical triplet patterns because at that point I had been doing um, the Jim Chapin book and like everything was triplet, triplet, triplet. But he was like doing quintuplet. He was doing like quintuplet voicings, like you know, doing these fives in there. And I was like, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, ju- you mentioned this, but he looks so relaxed. And I was like, that's the way I want to play. I want to be like, I want to have good posture. I want to be relaxed, and I want to like approach the kit from a more painterly um, perspective if that makes sense you definitely do I mean watching your videos you have you have a <laughs> I have piss poor posture so <laughs> whenever I see a drummer I lock in I'm just like how god <laughs> you're gonna be able to do this for a career now <laughs> oh well thanks well I, you know I did uh I did yoga for yoga yoga for a long I did you yoga. ate yogurt for a year yeah I ate yogurt for a long time <laughs> but that really helped and still good posture. And then I also had, like, if I did slouch, I would really feel it the next day. Like, even on tour, yeah. I was noticing that, like, if I was starting to crouch and do the Buddy Rich thing, you know, like, it would, I'd, I'd be paying for it the next day. So, so, Bruford, so, okay, so I listened to, uh, there's, like, a trilogy of 80s Crimson records, and I listened to them every day for a couple years. Yeah. Uh, discipline. It's called Discipline, then Beat, and then Three of a Perfect Pair. And then when I was 18, I got a, a, that was my first touring gig was playing with Adrian Ballou. So it just felt like a, a vi- like a real, um, you know, uh, full circle moment for sure. Do you still have the Simmons pads? I do. Are they, I mean, I've never played them myself. Are they cool? Would you recommend people messing around with them? Uh, well, I mean, the pads themselves are pretty, uh, they don't. They don't necessarily feel that great. I think they called them riot shield material. <laughs> like <laughs> people, people got like severe carpal tunnel from those things. Oh um, wow! But the brain, like the SDS eight, the SDS five, are have so much cool stuff you can do with them. They've now become ludicrously expensive. When I bought mine, I think it was like fifty bucks. Yeah, Joey Warnker was touring with uh, Simmons a couple years ago with Adams for Peace. He had like a full Simmons setup. That's rad. That's rad. Uh, all right, so number three is uh, Inca Roads by Frank Zappa from the album A Token of His Extreme Live, and that is the great Chester Thompson on drums. Oh, my and God, yeah. you said, uh, basically, yeah, his, his whole performance is bonkers, but let's just go uh, minute 801 to the end of this song, and then we'll discuss.
somewhere out there. Just a little paralysis. Was she running? Did she have a motor? Or was she something different? Guacamole queen. Guacamole queen. Guacamole queen. At the armadillo in Austin, Texas. Uh. Or did someone build a place or leave a space for just this thing to land? Chester's thing. On route. Did a booger bear come from somewhere out there? Did a booger bear come from somewhere out there? Did the Indians first on the bell? Come from the hell. <laughs> that's so cool it's insane um so that singer is a guy named napoleon murphy brock the guy with the red shirt and the white pants mm-hmm. um i started touring with him when i was 17 years old playing that music and um whoa what a crazy learning experience so that song in particular still stays with me um it's a very long song it's got a nine minute tune and that particular section um, is a keyboard solo by George Duke, and Chester Thompson is playing a beat that, like, I had never even thought was playable or fathomable. Like, and I still can't really play it right because it's yeah. so fast and it's just so like uh, articulate and breakneck, but it also grooves really hard. Uh, Chester is kind of the ultimate zapper drummer to me because he can really do it all. He can play all of the hard, complicated multimeter stuff and then you can also just like groove so hard mm-hmm. um and then it goes into uh septuplets of just like the ludwig octoplus toms and ruth underwood playing marimba in unison um again yeah. i don't think i've ever played that section 100 percent correct because uh it's incredible and uh then it like kind of ends on this silly almost like looney tunes spike jones ending that um <laughs> yeah but uh, my time in this, I, I toured in a Frank Zappa band called Project Object, which was Napoleon Murphy Brock, um, that singer, a guy named Ike Willis, who sang on a record called Joe's Garage, a marimba player named Ed Mann, who was the longest tenured uh, marimba vibraphonist with Zappa, and then Don Preston, who was the original keyboardist of the Mothers of Invention, the very first Zappa band. And I mean, I was so young and so green and had never toured before, and these guys were basically like, uh, teaching me how to tour and play that material every night. And it, we would rehearse for like three hours before every show. We'd play three hours every night. It was like paying your dues uh, to the extreme. How, how'd you get that gig at such a, such a young age? So I came from like a music program in Philadelphia that specialized in Zappa music, which was also weird. So like all the old Zappa guys would come through and visit and do like master classes at the school and they found out I was like the nerdy little hotshot butthead kid. And um, I sat in with them a couple times when they came through Philly. And they had another drummer who was great. Um, but he eventually left. And then I got the call. And I, and this was also a year I, after I dropped out of jazz school. So my parents were really bummed out that I dropped out of college. And they were like, if you don't you know, get a job soon, like... You're going to have to go back to school or you're going to have to figure something out. So like right like at the tail end of that the year that I of dropped course. out, um, I got the call. And so we went on tour and it was like a life-changing experience. I mean, and then I, I toured with them for three years prior to Dr. Dog. Um, and every night was, I, I would best describe Napoleon as like the most kind but like uh, particular band leader. So like if... If things weren't exactly right, because he played in Zappa's band for a very long time, 
if things weren't exactly right, he would let me know without a, without apology, you know? Uh, and at times it was hard for my young ego, but like mm-hmm. those moments were so crucial to my development as a musician. And I got to learn so much from them. And uh, just like having the bar be really high uh, every single night. And also the crowd for those Zappa shows is so discerning too, because they're really familiar with the material. It's almost like, yes, they're almost like Trekkies. Like mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't do it or if you don't, or or better yet, even more like Deadheads, where like they can tell you, oh, I see what you did there with that. You did the 1973 version of that song, and then you went into the 1988 version of that song, and you're like, yeah. the fact that you know that is yeah. <laughs> crazy. Um, so it taught me a lot about um, putting the ego aside and learning how to just uh, play the music as it's written. You know, that's that's immeasurable as a young kid you know yeah that's everything i mean and then the paying my dues part was that you know zappa is not the most popular music in the world and uh you know i've played to like nine people in kalamazoo you know on on (laughs) those tours you know you know you you're you're playing for three hours to potentially 20 people and then when you get to a major city you're playing to 400 people so it was very like up and down it was a good way of like kicking you in the butt because you're like yeah, we just played to 400 people playing like the craziest music ever written. And then like the next night you're like, you know, eating a sad hot dog and it's like a blizzard. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, you're like, why am I doing this? And I think every musician who has a career um, or, you know, is in it for a long time can relate to that. Oh, yeah, I still can. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. No, me too. I mean, there's there's times with Dr. Dog where we're like, we play some festival and we're like, wow, that was incredible. And then like. The next night, you're like, "Oh God, where are we? What is this town? Why are we playing here today?" You know, and the crowd seems really off. Everything seems wrong. You know, it never goes away. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, it was last summer with Eve Six. It was somewhere in Tennessee, um, and it was this this tribe's first venture into like a summer festival for their little area, and they just didn't promote it well at all. And they they brought Eve Six, and we played. We were the headliner, and we played for five people. They brought in a whole crew, probably spent $20,000 on sound and sound. They thought it was going to be this easy thing, and they just didn't promote it right, and it was was laughable. Dude, Dude, we we played a show that had 3,000 tickets sold, 5,000 tickets given away, 100 people showed up, and we were opening for Kevin Costner. (laughs) What? Yeah. Does Does he have like a alternative band what's I, I didn't know he was a musician he he has a band and like all of uh the music is about water world and it was so <laughs> is l- it a l- troll or is it i i don't know i don't know look <laughs> that I, sounds awesome i don't know if this is appropriate for the podcast but okay. i have not done many drugs in my life. I don't really drink. I'm very, I wouldn't say that I'm straight edge, but I'm like vegetarian and I live a very healthy lifestyle on tour. Yeah. But this night in particular, our tour manager was like, Hey, I got my hands on some mushrooms. Would you like to take a mushroom, one mushroom? And I was like, you know what? I'm like locked at this festival and like, I'm going to go see Kevin Costner. I'll take a mushroom. And so I did. And I watched the Kevin Costner set on mushrooms and laughed the entire time. And then I went back to the tour bus and I turned on the television and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves was on and I screamed because 
Because I thought joy he was... or, 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 or fright. It was a, it was a mixture of the, of the yeah. two, um, but there are so many details of, the, of that night that were hilarious. But that those were the um, the most important for me. Um, but yeah, that's the last time I've ever done a psychedelic. And I, Kevin Costner, if you're listening, um, thank you for a wonderful show. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee he would love that story if he heard that. Yeah, um, I mean the first two songs were great as far as I can remember. Um, but then some other bands played too, like Sixpence None the Richer played and um, mm. Soul Asylum played. I mean, oh, it was yeah. a it was a weird one. But yeah, this was right after the BP spill, and the show was in uh, the Gulf, the Gulf Shores. Oh. So people, I think, were just like not coming because they were upset. They were like, if B, like BP's putting on this show, like we're we're not going to go to it. It was it was a little fire festy that night for sure. <laughs> Some white, there was some white bread with American cheese backstage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey guys, we'll be right back with the show, but I wanted to talk real quick about Waves Audio. I use an endless amount of their plugins, including the Vocal Writer for this podcast. And for my drumming, I use the SSL channel, Abbey Road Saturator, CLA Drums for that easy, quick, polished sound, and, and many, many more. We're an affiliate member, and if this show brings you any sort of value, please kick the please kick. <laughs> please click the link in the show notes to make your next purchase. It supports me directly and helps keep the show going. So, all right, now back to the top five ways to make soup. I will say real quick, kind of with the uh, with the Bruford uh, tie-in, that uh, I was watching some Chester last night playing with Phil Collins, who Bill also did, and yes. uh, I think the song "Take Me Home." Uh, live from a 1990 performance has Chester doing I mean I, it's ultimately Phil's drum part but he's doing these fills over the bar line crashing on the on the two on the, the China very Lars Ulrich thing to do as well but just those fills over the bar line I really appreciated in that performance and Chester just killed it you know dude I mean Phil is such an under, I feel that Phil Collins is underrated I agree. I know what you mean by the, by the way, the way you kind of said that. You're like, it's weird to say that, but I do know what you mean. I think he's underrated. I think his drum tone is incredible. Like mm-hmm. his Gretsch, his Gretsch drum tone was so copied. Um, and I think it's a testament to Chester that Chester could rise to the occasion and not only play Phil's part, but like make it his own thing and make it like even more incredible. Like I, they have a deep respect for each other, which I think is like awesome. That's, uh, drummers are like that, though. You know, it's like drummers are so um, familial in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think that there's a lot of room for uh, competition in the drum world. So when I see like Chester and Phil, I'm like, yes, that's like the perfect example of what, the camaraderie that exists with drummers. I agree. It's rare, very rare that you see a drummer who's like, don't, this is my lick, don't use it. When guitarists and stuff are kind of like, this is my style, don't, don't, you know, don't, as Daru say, don't, don't bite off me. But mm-hmm. uh, he was just on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's such a giving atmosphere. I love drummers. Definitely. And I think that there's just, our personality types are more towards the like comedian mediator types. Like we're often trying to diffuse situations between band members you know mm-hmm. so like and we're also usually like the ear that people lend on or lean on yeah. so um I, I don't think there's much room for like you know uh i'm i'm the fastest gun in the west or whatever like i can learn something new from every drummer that i watch whether it's like a drummer playing with a kick snare and like a shaker 
Yeah. I'm like, that's amazing. Like, that can be the most transcendent thing in the world. Even though I love all these, like, hot licks that I'm pl- <laughs> making you play. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah. yeah. So any, so anyway, yeah, we can move on to the next one. All right. All right. So it's going to be uh, Ella Guru by Captain Beefheart from the album Dichotomy. And this is uh, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, on the drums. Yeah. It's actually from the album Trout Mask Replica. Just, oh, okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Dichotomy might be like a compilation, but Trout Mask Replica is definitely the record that I want to talk about. Okay, cool. Let's yep. uh, let's click on that. It's going to be a second seven to f- uh, second fifty-three. Now here she come walking, looking like a zoo. Hi Ella, hi Ella Guru. She know all the colors that nature do. Hi Ella, hi Ella Guru. Hi Ella, hi red, hi blue, she blue. Hi Ella, hi Ella Guru. She do what she mean and she do what she do. Got something for me, got something for you. She show something. Yeah, so I bought that record for $5 in Fort Collins, Colorado when I was like 18 years old. And I had, people have been telling me, you're going to love Captain Beefheart. Like, it's Zappa adjacent. And I didn't really know what to expect, but I put the... I, I had it on CD, I plopped it into my disc, man. And I was like, what the hell is this? This is, like, garbage. Like, what... I, I don't understand what's happening. But as the record progressed, it's a, it's a pretty long record. It's a double album, and it's, like, pretty sprawling and weird. And as the record played on, I was like, wait, this is... They, they are meaning to play like this, and the drums are immaculately composed, and the guitars are all composed. This isn't just, like free playing this mm-hmm. is like this was labored over and then i got obsessed with the concept that you could labor over something that sounds so chaotic um and drumbo the drummer his name is john french um his playing was almost like a combination of like ringo and joe morello but also like uh um the drummer with ornette coleman um not Donardo coleman but um ed blackwell like a little bit like ed blackwell and I was just like, what is this mixture of all these different styles of drumming? Like, what is happening with this music? And so I just sat down and started transcribing all the drum parts from that record. And weirdly, like in the same way that I became the Zappa aficionado, I became a Beefheart aficionado. But the thing about Beefheart that spoke to me potentially even more than Zappa was that it was so visceral. Like Zappa's music is very, um, you know, you could chart it out. You could sit down and you could, you know, take a ruler and mark, mark out all of the, you know, septuplets, 11 tuplets, 19 over 16. You could do all these crazy bars and figure it out. But with Beefheart, so much of it was the intensity and the uh, intent behind what they were playing that made it feel so dangerous and so like uh, rock and roll, like true raw artist rock and roll. So that record completely blew my mind open, changed my life. And um, when I joined Dr. Dog, I found out that all those guys were also Captain Beefheart fanatics and they knew all the stuff. They knew it really well. So it was a nice like bonding experience that we could all like, 
we're, we're all into this super weird uh, Captain Beefheart music, you know, like really angular guitars, really um, dead sounding drums. Captain Beefheart insisted upon putting cardboard all over the drum kit. So that's why the drums sound like that. He was okay. like, uh, okay. he's he like, drums shouldn't ring out. They need to sound like, they need to sound like, uh, you know, you're getting punched in the face. So you just like, on the day of the recording session, without telling the drummer, you just threw cardboard. He should have put a big fat snare drum on there. Know what I mean? Eh? And that's it, it folks. Was, we're done. If it were, <laughs> and if you had invented it in 1968. Yeah. You oh would have God. you would have predicted decades of drum muffling. <laughs> my God, we would have yeah. Well, we can just go back in time and sue them with the patent, so it's fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in a way, maybe Captain Beefheart invented the big fat snare drum. You know, he. Uh, if that's part of our story, that's part of our story, and I'm not upset at that. <laughs> ah, um, but you know, I've never. It, whenever I find somebody who likes. Captain Beefheart, and in particular the records Trout Mask Replica and Lick My Decals Off, um, <laughs> I, I, I hold on to them for dear life because I'm like, you get it. You get uh, this very particular part of my personality, and we, we are like, we are family from this point on. Um, I hold those people very near and dear to my heart. That section, right as you stopped it, it kind of goes into a more traditional, I didn't hear the whole song, but it kind of goes into a more traditional kind of train beat almost mm-hmm. so it's it's cool that when you set up chaos it kind of makes those payoffs even better right and i think that was how i learned that the music was through composed for that record because without those moments of them all locking in together on something mm-hmm. it just sounds like all right you know play free for five bars and then play free for this many but you realize that they um really labored over that material for nine months and -hmm. transcribed all of it but it's not really transcribable um i've played beefheart music with other people and we get close but it doesn't have the same uh ferocity that that record has behind it because they were like young and starving they had like no money from warner brothers to make that record and it just sounds like it was created in a vacuum it sounds like it was it was the, the record exists and there's like nothing else that can penetrate it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just found it like fascinating and it's been an inspiration. Whenever I feel uninspired, I'll put on Captain Beefheart and listen to those records and remember that like good doing something that you believe in and doing something kind of raw and doing doing your best to be an artist is like the way to go. You know, it, it, that why um, why compromise your vision? Yeah. That's sort of what I, that was sort of what I learned from that. And yeah, I, I, uh, to, to reference something that one of your band members in Dr. Dog, I think both of them, it was an interview, they were talking about just getting in kind of a zone of what you have for that record and how fidelity is so subjective. Sometimes with these lo-fi kind of cool stuff, you lose something if you would have recorded it super well. And so a of lot course. of that stuff from Captain Beefheart, it's, just like, it's totally a vibe. I know I overuse that phrase a lot, but it's a vibe. It is. No, it's 100% a vibe. And, like, I think I love when American music is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's the truest American music. When I hear, like, you know, Harry Parch or, like, microtonal marimba music from the 30s, I'm like, that's American music. When I hear, like, uh, um, 
R.L. Burnside play slide blues guitar and he's playing all these notes that sound like he has like 10 fingers. I'm like, that's real American music. You know, like that's what inspires me. Not like the idea of sort of like the uh, uh, factory farm version of American music. Like the raw sort of visceral thing is how I, I view America. Well, speaking of weird in a great way, your so your solo project, um, you you are very focused on visuals as an extension of your music. Like I love your <laughs> videos for I wrote them down. Nothing is real. Closer uh-huh. to heaven. Over it. Do you feel a little bit of that that beef heart vibe and making the music as translated to how you express yourself during the like in a video? Absolutely. And I think as time has gone on, I'm trying to find ways to link them better and make them more effective. But like, I'm very influenced by Twin Peaks and David Lynch, but I'm also really influenced by like Billy Madison. So like, wherever the cross section of those two things are is where I try to land. And um, like the video for nothing is real. I just taught myself CGI when I was on tour. And like, so that was you. Yeah, I made that video, yeah. I love that video, man. It's so creepy and so uh, haunting. (laughs) It's so cool, man. Thanks. Yeah, I was, like, really into this thing called Cool 3D World. It's these two artists from Philadelphia who make, like, really absurdist CGI. And I reached out to them if they would do a video for me, and they said no. And so I tried to make lemons, uh, lemonade out of lemons, you know, and was like, maybe I could just do my own CGI video. So I just started teaching myself how to do it. Um, and I think that's how I do a lot of things. Like, I don't, you know, I, I, I've taken lessons with people, but like, I try to filter it through my own DIY kind of nature of like, well, how would I do it? What, you know, what's the best way for me to approach this? Um, so yeah, man, for sure. Yeah, definitely check out that video. And then also I know Closer to Heaven, uh, <laughs> <laughs> your expressions in that song are in that video are very funny. Uh, you're, you're a good actor as well. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Well, you know, my friend uh, Jaff filmed it and my wife's in that video. And like, we just wanted to have so much fun because we've been having such a bad year. We were like, we know we have an opportunity to make a video. Let's just have as much fun as humanly possible. And it is, I, I, you know, I, I sent him a bunch of reference points and I was like, you know, let's go David Lynch. Let's go sort of like shock the monkey, Peter Gabriel. But then let's also go slapstick and have my wife dress up as a, uh, uh, in a, we bought a Japanese mascot costume from Japan and it, it shipped in time. I don't know. <laughs> I guess like because maybe because of COVID, but like the mascot people were like super responsive. They're like, yes, we will make you a tennis ball mascot. It'll take us two days, but we can make it and we'll send it to you. And when we got it in the mail, like my Natalie, my wife and I, we, we just cracked up like we were dying. So she she's the tennis ball in the video. That's funny. She's the tennis ball and she's also the, the ghost aura. Um, in the video that's awesome yeah please guys i'll 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 put a link in the show notes but go go check out eric's uh, solo stuff music and the videos as well which is what we're referencing um, yes so all right number five the uh here 20, we are yep there you go you can actually introduce it if you'd like i know i've been kind of t- taking the reins on it but no it's okay and this is why i wanted to be chronological so when i was 20 years old um my friend dave drywitz uh he plays bass in the band ween and we, we were talking one day we had a band together called Crescent Moon that was just bass and drums. Uh, we played some shows. It was really fun. And I was like, you know, man, I, I really want to get my technique in order. 
Like, I feel like my tech... I, I used to hold my sticks really tight, and I used to hold them in my forefinger, and I'd get blisters all the time, and I'd break drum heads, break sticks, break cymbals. Um, and he was like, you know, you should really study with this guy, Kenwood Denard, up at Berkeley. Um, you should take some lessons with him. He played with Jaco Pastorius. His technique is the best oh, wow. I've ever seen. And so I started studying with Kenwood Denard, which was amazing. I don't know if you know about Kenwood, but, like, he was one of the first dudes to play synthesizer and drums at the same time and sing um he his teacher was alan dawson and alan and alan dawson taught tony williams and steve smith vinnie kaliuta a lot of important drummers um and he hipped me to this tony williams clinic from 1985 uh zildjian day uh festival i think buddy rich introduces tony williams in this video (laughs) um Tony is will Tony's wearing OR scrubs, and I had heard Tony Williams before. Like I was a fan of his work on the on Miles Smiles. I was a fan of his work on Eric Dolphy's Out to Lunch. These were all things I had learned in jazz school. But this particular video uh, and the the section that I've isolated is one of the most beautiful displays of technique I've ever seen in my entire life, and it completely radicalized how I view drumming technique. Um, he uses his middle finger as the fulcrum and he uses his back fingers as a support and his forefinger is almost a guide but i just felt like his playing was so present and loud and articulate and he's just doing the beginning of the solo is just three minutes of a double stroke roll going into swiss triplets and and um flam accents and he's showing you that the double stroke when you break it all apart is all of these things um, and I just thought that that was incredible. So I, whenever I feel like lost in my technique, I just watch this video, in particular this section. And it's like his playing is like butter. I mean, it's incredible. He invented, a, he invented a technique. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's drop it in real quick, and then we can uh, keep talking about it. so yeah he's just doing a double stroke and like i think i think that like all the drum videos i had seen up until that point they start with some motif on the kit and then it like the drummer's just it's all fireworks and it's all just like blah 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 filling up space and i was tired of seeing that and there was just something so refreshing and also so zen about watching somebody perfectly execute a double stroke roll for that long without like really hesitating or struggling like he looks like just very relaxed yeah and around that same time i had also gotten really into that jojo mayer video um secret weapons for the modern drummer and i felt like the things i was learning in that video i could then apply to that tony video and then look at my own hands and be like well wow like my my fulcrum is completely closed how do i hold the sticks looser and kenwood my teacher was also very instrumental in being like why are you rushing through everything? You know, uh, loosen up your fulcrum. You should hold the sticks in a different place. Be more intentional. Um, funny story. 
Ken would would often haze me about stuff. And one month he was like, "We're gonna, you're going to learn the tempo one sixteen, uh, and you're going to live and breathe one sixteen for three months. And when you when you're done with that, come back to me, and we're gonna play one sixteen, just quarter notes at one sixteen together." And I was like, "Okay." So I like slept with the metronome on. I like. You know, I went crazy. Like I did one sixteen. Really? Yes, I went one sixteen bonkers, and then I went back up to Boston. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. drove drove up to Boston, had my lesson with Kenwood, and he's like, "All right, here we go, one sixteen. Let's do it." And he puts the click on, and we do one sixteen. I'm playing along with it, and I close my eyes, and I'm like, "Oh man, I'm nailing it. This is great." And then suddenly, like everything sounds completely off, and I'm like totally disoriented and I look up at Kenwood and I'm like I put my sticks down I'm like I'm so sorry I don't know what happened I like have been working on this really hard he's like ah I just slowed the metronome down your next lesson is confidence (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) Uh, which was a really important lesson he was like no you got this you know like you have to know that you worked really hard on this and now the second step is being able to own up to it and be like no I've got this you know it was nerve wracking. He would just type on his computer the whole time when, while I was playing. And he'd be like, and then he'd shit hand me the paper afterwards and be like, you were sloppy in measure six. You were sloppy in measure 11, like lagging here. You know, it was a very kind and organized way to tell me that I had a lot to work on and a lot of holes in my playing. Um, but he also played with like Maceo Parker and James Brown. So like he came from that school of thought kind of similar to Zappa where it was like, no, like, Nothing less than excellence will be accepted. <laughs> you know, like was there was there did he explain why he did 116? I think he just probably picked it at random. He was almost like a trickster in that way. Okay. Like he might have just been messing with me to cuz he knew that I was eager and that I was going to practice it and that I was going to drive myself insane, you know, in front of the mirror with my hands doing the the proper technique that I had just learned like he knew I was going to take it way too far and, and, and potentially bypass the confidence building part of it. Yeah. I ask because there is that kind of purgatory, if you will, of tempos where you can't rely off each individual stroke for like doubles, but it's not fast enough to rely off the rebound. So there is that kind of middle ground of like, yeah, it's this weird in between. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, like, I had always been mystified by the double stroke role, and I had never had such a, like, I mean, I've had great teachers in my life, but, like, Kenwood really laid it out for me in a way that I could understand. And then the fact that he was referencing me to, like, Tony and Jojo Mayer were, I'm a visual learner. And so to be able to see those things and then apply them to my own playing was huge. It was Mm -hmm. totally huge. And it really helped me. And um, I stopped breaking sticks. I stopped breaking heads. I just, you know, really wasn't breaking cymbals anymore. Like, my technique totally changed. And uh, our front of house engineers were like, yeah, I can actually hear you now. Like, you're not laying into the drums. You're letting the drums breathe. And, and uh, it's translating. It, they're projecting differently. That's when I, like, learned about that drums project differently than the way that you hear them in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know that, you know, like I would tune my snare super low and get an eight by 14 snare drum and it would be like a big fat diaper sound, you know, and then like, but then like the crowd never heard it. Like it was too, it was too low. Like there's, yeah. 
you have to figure out where the drum speaks and why certain heads work the way that they work and why certain shell composites work the way that they work. Like, I just didn't know any of that. I was just run- I was just like, yeah, I'll get a big snare drum. It's gonna sound it's gonna sound huge. And then like it didn't. It actually sounded like teeny tiny. And I'm sorry, you might have already said this, but how old were you when you started taking lessons from him? I was like 20 years old. I was right on the cusp of joining Dr. Dog. I joined when I was 22. No, and that was a whole learning experience in and of itself. I mean, like, it's a whole different skill set to play in a band like Dr. Dog than it was to play all of this technically demanding stuff. Just so much different. Because, yeah, I asked because I'm 33 right now, and I've taken lessons somewhat recently from Dave Vilich, from Bruce Becker, who uh, was kind of the apprentice to Freddie Gruber. Because I'm similar to you, I kind of grew up kind of my own technique, doing my own thing. And so I would consider myself, still to this day, having kind of piss-poor technique, more so relying on the theatrics of, you know, looking the part as opposed, you know, like looking like Dave Grohl as opposed to actually sitting there like like you do with proper technique, proper posture, and just relying on that. And so whenever I try and really you know, lean into what they've taught me, I feel like it, it's the first day I'm on the drum set. You know, and it's yeah. so nerve wracking because you're like, I have to take a step back for minimum six months before I can even start applying this in a really confident way. Dude, and, it uh, takes so long. It takes so long. And when I was studying with Kenwood, like I would get so frustrated because I'd like hear, you know, a, a board recording of a show and I, I'm just like, oh my God, like when am I ever going to reach that point where I sound the way I want to sound? And yeah. then that, but that didn't go away. And, and in, a, in a way... It never goes away. Uh, you know, you referenced that KEXP video, and I can't even watch that video because I'm like, oh, I played like crap at that Oh, you're day. crazy. You know, like, I was going to no, reference I, how amazing you sounded, like tonally, no, too. No, 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 no. I was like, <laughs> oh, I was like, ah, oh, I played like crap. I was tired. I look, I look tired. I'm ah. Like, and, oh. but I think that this, but I think the fact that you, and first of all, you're a great drummer. Like, I've seen you play before. You're a great drummer. I wouldn't Thank call you. it piss, I wouldn't call it piss poor technique, but you're humble. And that is a key ingredient to progressing. And I think that if we were to walk into a room and think that we were all hot shit all the time, like it's just not conducive to growth. And like you should always be judging your playing and saying this could be better because then you're actually going to get better. You know, like there's going to be a day when you wake up and you play play an Eve 6 song. Maybe you play Inside Out and it's the best you've ever played it. And you're like... You're like, man, it feels so good to play this song today, and I've nailed it. And then the next day, it's not going to feel like that, you know? <laughs> like exactly. So, and then you'll be like, ah, I got to grow even more. I'm going to find this other thing, you know? It, very rarely do I go back and hear a recording from a couple of years ago, and I'm like, man, I really nailed it. Like, I'm, there's always something to pick out. And Jim Keltner t- touches on that in um, that Drum Doctors video. He says the same thing. He's like, I can't even listen to some of the stuff I've done, like, with Rye Cooter. Like, oh, God, I sound terrible. Oh, my terrible. gosh, yeah. But you're like, what? It's like, that's the greasiest pocket playing ever, you know, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So I totally understand where you're coming from. And um, it's beautiful that you are still learning you know like i haven't taken a lesson in a while i'm I'm sure i would benefit from a lesson with davy lich or uh the other guy you mentioned you know yeah all right well that's the five so uh yeah um i really want people to find more of your stuff outside of dr dog as well so can you do a little self-promotion speaking of being humble but can you talk (laughs) about uh, your solo stuff a little bit where people can find it 
Yeah, you, uh, I have a new album called Wiseacre. It came out in August, um, and you can find it on Bandcamp, Spotify. Uh, let's get those Spotify streaming numbers up. You know, Woo! I've got to get those. I got to get those uh, fractions of a penny, but yep. let's do it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, we're we're all sold out of vinyl for now, but there will certainly be more in the future. So just keep your eyes peeled and. Go to my Instagram. It's called Strange America. There you go. Well, thanks for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. This was a, a true pleasure. Agreed. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. And that's the show. Be sure to check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BigFatSnareDrum. The audio you're hearing was edited in part by Isotope RX8 Audio Editor. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Cheers. <laughs>